Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. Week 1 recap edition. Football season is finally back, and we have a lot to talk about. So much so that we honestly can't get to everything. Uh, We won't even pretend to try to analyze every single game, or else we'd be here all day long. I'm sure some of you would appreciate that, but I guarantee you our wives would not. So today we're going to be doing our top 10 takeaways from the week that was, excluding, of course, the Thursday game, which we already talked about. But EJ and I each have five of kind of our quick hit first impressions from the opening Sunday, as well as the Monday games. Currently, by the way, we are recording this during the second half of the Titans versus Broncos game. So uh, not, we're not going to be having any too strong opinions on that game. But uh, throughout the first half that EJ and I watched together, uh, I think we got a pretty good idea of who each of these teams are. Uh, And I'm not going to lie, both Denver and Tennessee have been impressive in their own ways. But before we get into our 10 key takeaways from week one, EJ, buddy, how you doing and what are you drinking? I am doing extremely well because after no camp, no preseason, no warm up, uh, very little college in terms of football games, we have what feels like a billion football games all at once and I Gotta tell you, it feels like being a junkie. I am just over the moon. So many storylines, so many cool things. It was crazy to sit there yesterday and just be able to flip between games, look at different highlights, see all kinds of storylines pouring in on Twitter. The NFL is back, and that feels really good because I haven't been outside in almost a week because we are sitting in the middle of the worst air quality on the planet. All the smoke from the fires on the West Coast went out onto the Pacific, and then the wind shifted and it all came back. So i uh, been locked in the house, but couldn't be a better time to be locked in the house than having a little football to look at. And um, I have a football-themed beer that I have to give you a little bit of crap about because I asked you before the podcast, hey, and the name of this beer is Johnny Utah Pale Ale. And for those of you <laughs> that have actually watched a movie or two, you'll know that Johnny Utah was the protagonist in Point Break, Big-time football hero in college. Ended up turning into an FBI agent, if you can believe that, because it was Keanu Reeves. But this is from Georgetown Brewing up in Seattle. It is a great uh, pale ale. 5.6 by volume. I got a nice cold 12-ounce can of it here. I thought, oh, this is great. It's football-themed. I said, hey, Brett, have you ever seen Point Break? And he said, no. I'm I'm like the one guy on planet Earth that's seen Mickey Blue Eyes 20 times, but I've never seen Point Break. (laughs) Okay, well, Rich Eisen is also in your camp because he admitted on his show last week that he had not seen Point Break either, and Rich seems very much like a Point Break roundhouser. And we are talking, just so you know, about the original Point Break, not the sham of a remake from a couple of years ago. But anyways, I have a good cold beer. We have a ton of football to talk about. I'm going to crack this thing open, and we're going to get going because, man, storylines galore from week one. Yeah, before I get into my first takeaway, uh, I do want to give a shout out to a local restaurant that inspired my drink for the week. It's called Not Without My Bitters uh, from a place called Mess Hall (laughs) Kitchen up in L.A. I know, it's the perfect name for a cocktail. Uh, Perfect name for your cocktail, that's for For, sure. For my cocktail, for sure. Uh, But they have a great cocktail program over at Mess Hall Kitchen over off Los Feliz in L.A. If you're in Southern California, highly recommend you check them out. Uh, And I loved it so much, I actually went up to the bar and asked for the recipe. And it is an ounce and a half of Buffalo Trace, a half ounce of Laird's Apple Brandy, 
Uh, three quarter ounce honey syrup. Uh, they say three quarter ounce lemon juice. When I made it for myself, it was a little bit too lemony, so I, I dialed that down to a half an ounce. And then you do, uh, honestly, anywhere between a quarter to a half an ounce of Angostura bitters, which is a lot. That's probably like four or five times more than I put into my old fashions, which are pretty bitters forward. So they call it not without my bitters for a reason. But uh, it is such a phenomenally balanced cocktail. I liken it to if there was a drink that could take you back to a childhood memory where you're sitting on the living room floor watching a movie with your parents. Maybe it's point break. Who cares? You're sitting <laughs> Uh, I could just see all the little kids gathered around. No, not that kind of movie. But all right, I- I'm going you know, with you. You're watching a movie with your parents. You're sitting by the fireplace. You're eating some fresh cookies out of the oven. And you're just warm and fulfilled and happy. This is that drink. It is It is so damn good. And maybe if you don't like bitters, it wouldn't be your thing. I happen to love Angostura bitters. I love whiskey. It is both of those things. It's like an old-fashioned but cranked up to 11 with brandy and honey and lemon added in. It's it's phenomenal. So if you're in Southern California and you want a really good dinner and really good drinks, go to Mess Hall Kitchen because they inspired my drink for this week. But enough talk about alcohol. Let's talk about some football. And food. And food. Let's talk about some football. It's what everybody's here for. Uh, my first takeaway is the Cowboys, It's I, I kind of get the feeling that they're the same team that they used to be and that they still are. They find ways to lose, even under a new coach, new regime. It is fascinating to me how an offense so talented that honestly had pretty good numbers all around. Dak had efficient numbers. Zeke had a nice night. The receivers weren't awful. Uh, but you're still putting up 17 points, and in the last 10 or 11 minutes of the game, you can't put up anything in multiple possessions. You get shut down over and over again. It, it just doesn't make sense to me how they consistently shoot themselves in the foot. And I'm not talking from like a decision-making standpoint. I'm talking like from an execution standpoint on the field. I know a lot of people give Mike McCarthy crap for not taking the field goal and tying it up when there was like 10 or 11 minutes left in the game. Analytics-wise, that was the correct decision. You know, you're trying to play to win. You're not playing to tie. And so they tried to go for a score there. They had two downs to get six yards. Um, The third down run in particular has caught a lot of flack. Like, I went back and watched it. It was a two-high shell on defense. It was five-on-five in the box. You had the numbers. All you have to do is execute. Aaron Donald kicked the shit out of Zach Martin on that play, disrupted everything. Zeke had to cut early, and he only got three out of it. If Zach makes his base block on that play, it's six yards easily, and all of a sudden they look like geniuses for calling a run on third and six and catching him off guard. Again, it's a two-high shell. When you have numbers, you run the damn ball, especially when you had that offensive line and you have Zeke. Aaron Donald just did Aaron Donald things and blew it up. And then on fourth and three after that, they used motion. They, they saw man coverage. You know, They had a, a rub route onto C.D. Lamb. And in theory, that was the right call. Zach made the right read. But the Rams, again, out-executed them. They had a cone call on C.D. Lamb, which means you get the free safety, doubling C.D., anything underneath and short, uh, which he was the point man in a stack and a cut split. So naturally, a cone call is something that you might expect there. Uh, they did a good job disguising it. The cone call was there. Fuller got over the top. He, he you know, tackled him short of the sticks. Like It's just execution. So I, I don't blame the coaching entirely. I blame the players for not doing their jobs. Uh, there was a lot of yardage left on the field, a lot of points left on the field. And as much as we like to, to crap on the Cowboys for losing a lot of games under Jason Garrett, it wasn't his fault all the time. The players have to take some responsibility too. So my main takeaway is new coach, same team. Yeah, same Cowboys. Uh, I'm going to... I'm going to go with a slightly less detailed take and, and come with a question. How much do you think they miss Travis Frederick? Oh, uh, I mean, how could you not miss Travis Frederick? Uh, right. I would say, you know, <laughs> communication was was a, a rough thing here and there. Not that, like, uh, you know, they still have a lot of veterans on the offensive line, but Travis, Travis Frederick was so good in terms of identifying fronts, calling protections, making everything so easy on Dak, in addition to his insane movement skills. Like, 
any offense would miss a Hall of Fame caliber center, uh, but especially against that Rams defensive front, yeah, they miss Travis Frederick for sure. Yeah, a little bit of that. You might have heard me groan in the background while you were talking, and it's not because you were talking about the Cowboys. It could have been, but it's not. It's because uh, Simmons just missed an interception that was tipped on a Ryan Tannehill ball that was a little bit high. So you're going to hear us uh, <laughs> sort of groan and cheer and do all kinds of stuff because we're watching the game on the side because that's what we do. But my first takeaway, uh, the Washington D-line staying in the NFC East is going to be a problem, period. All year long, they looked angry and hungry like they were out for blood yesterday. They played like sharks. Once they got a taste, they were in a frenzy. They ended up with eight sacks. Chase Young, one of five players in NFL history now. There's a lot of NFL history. Only one of five players in NFL history with more than one sack in his rookie debut. Could have had two. Uh, Kerrigan ended up with a couple. Kerrigan is, Ryan Kerrigan is annually terribly underrated and he mashed a depleted Philly line I'll give you that all day long ended up with a strip sack later on that he also recovered that line we had talked about it in our preview of the division that it was something that we were looking forward to that we thought Ron Rivera was going to take that talent and sort of maximize it boy in week one against a divisional opponent did not disappoint they set the tone that secondary is not tremendous but even they keyed off the defensive line. They knew they weren't going to have to cover for very long. They came forward hard. They were hitting on the short crossers. They wanted to get in on some of that action, and it really set the tone, not only for the defensive unit, but for the whole team. Washington went on to upset Philadelphia. So that Washington D-line, we talked about it, and, man, they showed out. They delivered in week one. I mean, eight sacks is eight sacks. Like, it's it's hard to luck your way into eight sacks. You can only do that if you have a truly dominant front. And the thing with a secondary, even though they are a weaker secondary, if you know that he can't hold the ball more than two and a half seconds, if you know he can't take five-step drops or seven-step drops without getting creamed, that means you can tee off on everything short, which means the secondary, by default, will be better because they know they kind of don't have to worry as much about the deep ball. Like, you almost have to do six and seven man protections to throw deep on Washington against this kind of pass rush. And even that might not be enough. So uh, it, it truly uh, might be the most dominant defensive line, both in the first and second shift. You know, if we want to call it shifts like in hockey, where you're just kind of rotating guys in in waves, uh, they are talented, they are deep. And they're coming. I, I guarantee you every single week uh, th- this this pass rush is going to be a problem for everybody. Yeah, I'll give a quick shout-out to to the Chargers defensive line because I did end up watching the, the Bengals-Chargers game, and their defensive line was close. They were on point all day. They got contributions from Ingram, who ended up with a crazy interception. Tillery, Jerry Tillery, who I was high on coming out of Notre Dame, he looked tremendous versus both the run and the pass. Uh, Bosa Anunwosu had a sack as well. Another guy that I was uh, really liked coming into his his draft year. Everybody contributing, like you said, rotations, shifts. They gave Cincinnati absolutely very little daylight. And again, Cincinnati's line is not tremendous. We'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, they come in a close second. But the Washington D line shone pretty bright on opening weekend. Yeah, there's a lot of really. Uh eye-popping defensive stats for a few of these teams. I'll, I'll talk about one of them in a bit as well over in Pittsburgh because uh, they, they looked almost as good as Washington. But before I get to them, my second take for the week, uh, the Seahawks finally let Russ cook. I'm going to be doing a film room on this this week uh, in terms of the flip and mentality for Seattle from a run-first team to a pass-first team. I hope that this trait holds because they were certainly rewarded for it. Seattle, in comparison to the rest of the league, they had the second highest neutral pass rate in the whole NFL on Sunday at roughly 67%. And what a neutral pass rate is means a first or a second down pass with more than two minutes left in the half or in the game, meaning you're not kind of in a truly pass-only situation, and with a win probability between 25 to 75%, meaning it's not just a, a blowout or it's not garbage time or anything like that. So a truly neutral situational play call 
they called passes on two-thirds of those. It was the second highest percentage in the league, as I said, and it was the highest percentage of any game they've had under Brian Schottenheimer at Play Callers. So it's a this is new uncharted territory for them. You know, going into the fourth quarter of the Falcons game, Russ had 26 pass attempts. No running back had more than four carries on the team. So their run-pass balance, for once, was heavily skewed towards Russ, not away from him. And because of that, they were leading 28-12 to at the time, and to be honest, got a pretty easy win that they controlled from start to finish. So this, in my opinion, is what Seahawks fans have been clamoring for for years of, let's not wait until the fourth quarter to let Russ do all the work. Like, let's just have him do it right out the gate. And they controlled the game. You know, he was methodical. He was accurate. He was Russell Wilson. So I think when you have an MVP caliber quarterback, you need to use him for all four quarters. And for once, the Seahawks finally did that. Yeah, typically Seahawks, my backyard team here in the Pacific Northwest. And what they'll do is lean on Chris Carson and the line for the first, oh, most of the game. uh, Try and pound and pound and pound. And then if they get behind, they'll open up Russ. Yesterday, Chris Carson had a very nice game as a compliment, right? He had two receiving Mm -hmm. touchdowns on short throws. He was, I would say, uh, occupying the correct spot in that offense, which is a good, he's a great, solid, in-between-the-tackles runner. And he's a compliment to Russ. He's not the primary, but Seattle's run that sort of in reverse for quite a while, so I love to see the shift Uh, It's really cool. I, like you, hope it continues, as do many Seahawks fans who have been extremely vocal about Let Russ Cook. Uh, And that leads pretty solidly into my second point for the week, which were there were three quarterbacks that looked uh, very in sync with their teams and what I'll call elite right out of the gate. And that was Russ, Aaron Rodgers, and Lamar Jackson. Mm -hmm. You talked at length about Russ. Uh, you know, short summary, my short summary, you had a much more eloquent summary. <laughs> my short summary, he had more TDs than incompletions yesterday. <laughs> that says a lot. <laughs> he had four touchdowns and three incompletions. He was third, like 31 of 34 with four TDs, uh, which is what Seattle fans have been clamoring for and, and what NFL watchers um, around the league have said for a long time that Russ, if you were paying attention, is one of the top quarterbacks in the league. He absolutely looked at yesterday. Um Unfortunately for me, being a Bears fan, any notion of Aaron Rodgers' fall from the top QB pedestal was rudely erased yesterday. He was absolutely whistling in strikes. Both velocity and accuracy were at what I will call unreal levels. His pocket movement, which is subtle but tremendous, was top-notch. Bet against Aaron Rodgers at your peril. Maybe it's drafting love. Uh, maybe it's that he thought he wasn't getting respect in the top QB conversations. Whatever it was, he is dialed. The strike he threw to Devontae Adams in the in the edge of the end zone after rolling right oh, for about 15 yards was crazy. an absolute fastball that hit Devontae right in the chest with defenders standing around him who just sort of looked at it like, I... I didn't think he could do that, (laughs) right? They were within range to make a play on that ball, but they just didn't because it got there, like, instantly. Uh, Poor Cam Dantzler, man. Dantzler got Uh, killed. But if you look at coverage, that was pretty good coverage for a rook. I'd say against about 20 quarterbacks in the league, you're going to make a play on the ball. Against Rodgers, no chance. None. That ball was clearly over his head. I It just, Rodgers looked in, forget midseason form, he looked like in dialed best ever Aaron Rodgers December form, which is a very scary thought, not only for the Bears, but for the rest of the league if that continues. And then Lamar Jackson, uh, he got better. No joke. Like Lamar Jackson, <laughs> MVP season, people are like, what are you talking about? He got better. He looked completely at ease and in command of the Ravens offense. He threw from every possible arm angle, was on time and on target. So often he'd leave the pocket, drop to a pure sidearm, not even a three-quarter delivery. And I'd be like, Lamar, what are you doing? You're breaking down. And the ball would be perfectly thrown on the numbers, on time, right before the sideline. He just didn't miss. I'm hard. The last thing was his touch, which was 
one of his only weak-ish points in his game is that he would gun the ball a lot. He wouldn't throw with touch, especially on sort of middle-to-short crossing routes. That was not one of his strengths. His touch yesterday was markedly improved. Big difference. I'm not going to say night and day, but a big difference from last season. And given that, look, he can still run, folks. We don't even need to talk about that. He took off at one point and was an instant threat to the defense down the sideline. Almost scored a touchdown, put his head down, dove, mm, you know, avoided contact. He can still run. That's not in question. But I'm hard-pressed right now to see what anybody, and I mean anybody, could want out of him in the top QB conversation that he's not delivering right now. Yeah, I kind of want to just fast forward to the AFC Championship because uh, I don't, I don't see anybody other than Kansas City beating them. It's, it's. Oh yeah, they, they got a quarterback, and not only do they have a quarterback, like this is year three, and he's already at the best case scenario that we all envision for Mike Vick. Like he's he's already at beyond peak Mike Vick in, in his third like it's insane. Yeah, and they've got and the team they've stacked around him. The offensive line, very good. Uh wide receivers, Hollywood looked amazing. They've got Boykin, who I think is gonna come on extremely strongly. We need to talk about Andrews at tight end. I liked Andrews coming out. Uh I thought he was somewhat underrated. I didn't envision where he's gotten to like as of yesterday he's edging into Travis Kelsey territory and everybody's gonna say no no EJ you're too quick to judge uh he's there (laughs) go back and go back and watch the game he showed everything that the top tight ends the top two maybe three tight ends in the league are showing if you want to talk about four you talk about maybe Hunter Henry sneaks in there you want to talk about Travis Kelsey you want to talk about Zach or Zach didn't have a great day yesterday. Kittle. He's, 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 yeah, oh, Kittle for sure. I'd say Kittle's the sort of pure number one, and I'm not saying Andrews is Kittle, but he is edging into that third or fourth best tight end in the league category. He looked dominant. So if you take Lamar, put a very good offensive line in front of him, you have good receiving threats, a great tight end threat, and then you've got a completely versatile running back by committee. J.K. Dobbins in his rookie debut ends up scoring two TDs. I think will fairly quickly overtake Mark Ingram in the lead role there. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that. Dobbins is one to grab if he's available in your fantasy league. I don't know that he will be, but uh, you just look at that Ravens offense led by Lamar as sort of the ultimate trigger man, and he's surrounded by, I don't, really see any weaknesses short of something happening an injury i'm with you that is a really really tough out as an offense right now oh and me as a texans fan feel like i feel like i'm on the outside looking in on what a real actual championship contender looks like but i'm uh, with you buddy but you know different conference <laughs> yeah unfortunately bears fans and texans fans have a lot in common uh yeah, especially not the good bears stuff fans. not the, not good, the stuff. good stuff uh, I will say my third takeaway, uh, it's kind of in progress because we are, what, halfway through the third quarter watching this Broncos-Titans game. Johnny Smith just scored. Uh, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I'm a, I'm a big Johnny Smith guy, by the way. I, I hope you guys took my advice and drafted him. He's he's awesome. But uh, anyway, Drew Locke, I think, is a going to be a legitimately... No! <laughs> How did you miss that? Dude, oh my there goes God. my point six. There goes my oh. point six. We'll talk about it, but uh, yeah, the Titans just shanked the extra point. <laughs> oh, well, you got to oh, cut Gus Kelsey. This is ridiculous. Oh, uh, the yeah, hold was no, kind of messed up. Uh, it's the, not uh, good, but he missed that by four yards. That's I know not close. the procedure was screwed up, but that's anyway. Uh, look at him. Look at the holder. <laughs> Oh, uh, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, Drew Lock. Uh, good. Not kicking. Yeah. <laughs> Not kicking. You know, he's 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 honestly. I only watched the first half in depth, but I really liked what I saw. He was efficient. You know, passing at like a seventy-two percent clip. He had a touchdown pass. Uh, there were a few botched plays that he kind of made something out of nothing with his legs. He only really had one egregious miss, and that was where he kind of sidearmed it to Nick Vanette. He almost tried to pull a Lamar, but he's not Lamar, obviously. Uh, and he missed uh, an easy touchdown to Vanette on the goal line, uh, and then they got stopped in fourth and goal in the next play. So that, I think, was kind of the one true negative in this game. But other than that, he's been efficient, he's been accurate, he's been aggressive, and he's been comfortable. 
Pat Shermer, I think, is doing an excellent job of making him comfortable in this offense, even though it's his first game in it without a true offseason. He's trying to learn uh, with all these new weapons. The one guy that he was truly comfortable with at the wide receiver position was Cortland Sutton. He's not playing. Uh, he kind of has been relying on Noah Fant in this game, who's another guy who he worked with at kind of local Denver area high schools the whole offseason, so he had chemistry with him. Fant's had a really nice game today as well. Uh, but overall, I, I really, really like what, I, what I'm seeing from Drew Locke. He just he looks so much more comfortable today than under Rich Gangarello, and we'll see what he does in the fourth quarter as we kind of continue to record this episode. But so far, so good. And Broncos fans, I think you have a lot to be excited about. Unfortunately, Denver sustained so many injuries so far, uh, really crucial injuries, obviously with Von Miller being out for the year. Bradley Chubb is still kind of recovering. He's on a pitch count, and we'll see what happens with Cortland's shoulder. Um, But there's so much to be excited about in the future in Denver. And I think within a couple years here, you know, if not later this year, this could be a team that I think challenges Kansas City. Maybe not beats Kansas City, but at the very least, uh, just gives them a, a run for their money in every way, shape, and form. <laughs> look at the look at the replay of Goskowski. He knew it as soon as I, it is. It's play. not pretty. I was watching that. <laughs> no, oh I'm with God. you on Drew Locke. I love the decisions. Like the decisions were the thing. Uh, you talked about execution on the one throw to Vanit, but I'm not going to get on him about that. But the decisions, right? There were so many times we were watching together in the first half, and it was like, oh, great call. No, right throw. Yes, that's the option. Get him. Yep, he's right there. Get. Oh, he got him, right? He just made mm-hmm. the right calls, and he's making them consistently. And when you have as many weapons, we've talked at length about all the weapons on the Denver offense. When you have that many weapons and you have a trigger man who is being consistent and hitting the right decision, generally your results are going to be really pretty good. And Locke looks, again, improved. And he played pretty well at the end of last season, if you were paying attention. So that is a really, really good sign for Denver fans. So going on, I'm going to go to another young quarterback who is uh, even younger uh, than Drew Locke, and that's Joe Burrow. He's got some lessons to learn, but Joe Burrow is going to win a lot of games. He could have won the one this week. Look, Joey still has ice water in his veins he is, mm-hmm. oh man, he is not rattled. The game did not look too big for him, too fast for him. They talk about it slowing down for rookies. It slowed down for Burrow sometime last year, and it's not speeding up anytime soon. I don't care that he's got new teammates. He was voted a captain as a rookie, which is extremely rare. You can tell they gravitate to Joey B and he made mostly good choices. He did have a few silly ones. He had a couple of welcome to the NFL moments. He threw Melvin Ingram. Yes, that's right. Melvin Ingram, an interception on a silly little toss. Uh, But he was within a made kick uh, of winning this game. He gives Cincinnati instant credibility. Look, he's going to need a little bit of O-line help to really make some noise. We talked about this. The Cincinnati O-line, not great. It's good enough. But again, he's got great weapons around him. A.J. Green is back. He's got Mixon, who just got paid and ran really well yesterday. Also fumbled, which is incredibly rare for Mixon if you followed his career. I think he said something like three fumbles in his entire career, and he had one yesterday, which is unbelievable. But in terms of Burrow, Cincinnati fans should be pleased. He delivered as advertised. You've got a real quarterback, a guy that can absolutely take that franchise to the next level, is going to be a threat in that division, especially as Big Ben you know, retires oh. or moves on. We're talking about a real deal. Uh, it's not fool's gold. Top pick in the draft did basically what you'd want to see him do on opening weekend. Uh, first things first, did you see that route from Jerry Judy just now? No, I was actually oh, oh. concentrating on what I wrote down about some other guy that played pretty good college football last year. But no, <laughs> Jerry so, Judy uh, has great, great routes. He did have a bad drop earlier in this game. Uh, but look, you're not going to beat Judy on routes. He's got tremendous feet. One of his, I would say his primary attribute, and he has many, as a wide receiver, but I'd say primary is his feet or his route running, which kind of go hand in hand. 
He's disgusting. But uh, speaking of disgusting, disgusting. J- Joe Burrow is also going to be disgusting. I He's one of those guys where the poise is like the first thing that jumps out. Like he is never scared. He never gets rushed. Like he, he always seems like the game moves in slow motion around him. And he's still trying to figure out what he can and can't get away with. And it reminds me, I'm not saying he is the same guy, but it reminds me of when Patrick Mahomes, when he was in practice as a rookie, and we, we heard all these reports out of his rookie training camp that he's throwing all these interceptions and that he was wild and everything like that. And everybody's like, oh, okay, I don't know about this. And Andy Reid said, look, we're we're letting him throw whatever he wants to throw so he can see what he can get away with. And I think Burrow is still, since he didn't really get a true offseason, Burrow didn't really get a camp or a preseason to kind of figure out what NFL speed is like. And so there is going to be a learning process throughout September and where he's going to figure out, okay, what are the kinds of throws I can make against what kind of windows, against what kind of shells. Um, And again, by October, I think we're really going to see him start to click. It'll be the same kind of thing um, with Deshaun Watson, where Deshaun Watson looked really rough in his rookie preseason. And then by, by December, ironically against the Bengals, which was his first start, it clicked for him, and all of a sudden he's throwing all these crazy touchdowns. He was on pace to throw 40 touchdowns as a rookie before he tore his ACL. You know, sometimes with guys like that that are used to taking chances, uh, they they need a good four weeks of, of true game reps, uh, whether it's preseason or otherwise, to kind of get comfortable. So I think by first week of October, we're going to see Joe really start to deal, especially with all these weapons that he's got around him. Um, as long as the right side of that offensive line can just – not completely get him killed this Bengals offense should be pretty damn fun but here's the thing here's the thing about Burrow with everything you said which I think is true he had no cupcake in his first start he faced the guys I talked about in my opening thought the San Diego defensive line and they were San Diego hitting yes sorry (laughs) Ah. <laughs> the know. guys formerly known as San Diego Chargers, who are now LAC, which does not roll off the tongue for me, obviously. So I'll take my I'll take my lumps on that one. I realize the NFL really wants them in LA, and that's cool. But no, look, the Chargers defensive line was hitting yesterday. It's not just that they're good or that they have name recognition. They were getting contributions all the way down the line from guys like Inwosu. Uh, Ingram and Bosa were their regular advertised self. Tillery played a much better version of himself, or at least the, I'd say the best possible version. Burrow did not have a lot of time. His line is not great. And he was still in it till the final minute. Like you said, no panic in the eyes. He was a couple of silly decisions away from taking that game with no preseason, no real training camp. And he's right there right now against one of the best defensive pass rushes in the NFL. Like, he goes up against somebody that doesn't know how to rush the passer. He's going to destroy them. Yep. I, he's he's that dude. I think the Bengals... He is that uh, dude. They, they chose the right year to be terrible. I'll just say that. He's, yeah, he's people that ask me in the offseason what I would trade as a Bears fan for Joe Burrow as a first pick. And I said, because we had talked about Burrow at length, both of us had watched him independently. We knew what he was. He was different. He's not just the best of 2020 in terms of the draft. He's a guy that you want on your team for all the reasons we just talked about. And I said I'd give three first-round picks. And they looked at me like I had horns coming out of my head. And I think (laughs) by, oh, six weeks into this season... Those people are going to look at me and go, yeah, you know, with Chicago's offense and defense, three first. Yeah, yeah, I'd do that. Yeah, I'd do that. It won't And Bengals fans will look at you and say, not enough. (laughs) Right. (laughs) At that point, they will. At that point, eh, you know, but no, they shouldn't have given up. They picked the right guy, and he showed it yesterday. My fourth takeaway for the week, uh, speaking of crazy pass rushes, the Steelers defense did not miss a beat and overall the Steelers as a team are already really good and they're nowhere near their peak when they get there uh they I I don't know if they're a better team than Baltimore because Lamar is just at a totally different level right now even over Ben Roethlisberger if he's healthy like Lamar's at a different level from everybody but Russ and Pat 
Um, so Baltimore as a team is still probably better, but I'll tell you what, the Steelers are going to, they're going to make them earn every single yard because this defense is crazy good. Ben, it took him probably close to a half to warm up, but near the end of the first half, he started to get in sync with his wide receivers, particularly Deontay Johnson. They were starting to really abuse this giant secondary on crossing routes and, and screens, and uh, it, it it looked pretty ugly for the giant secondary, I'm not going to lie. But once the passing game really took off, um, Benny Snell also uh, had a little pep in his step. He lost 15 pounds this offseason and looks way more springy than I've ever seen him look like this is the best shape I think he's ever been in even going back to his days in college did you just use the training camp quote I know hashtag best shape of my life we hear it okay but with Snell it's with I mean it's true with him he lost 15 I have never I mean to your credit I have never heard Penny Snell described as springy so I'm going with you here he looked good. He looked good. I still think Anthony McFarland in the long run is is my guy in that backfield because hmm. it doesn't matter how much weight Benny Snell loses, he's never going to run 4-4 like McFarland. But, not uh, like that, no. Mm-mm. Not like that. But for a lead back, uh, this new version of Snell, I think you could do a lot worse than him as your lead back, especially if you're giving him you know 20 touches a game. You need somebody with that kind of beef that can hold up to a, to a beating like that. Uh, Snell looked pretty good. The offensive line... Uh, they took some injuries, so I'm curious to see how bad those are, particularly the Zach Banner injury at right tackle. So we'll, we'll see how they come out of it. But Ben looked good. The O-line looked good. The run game looked good. The receivers looked good. And the defense was ferocious. I mean, all over Saquon, all over Daniel Jones, who did his best considering the circumstances. I mean, just constant pressure. Um he had a couple bad picks, Danny Dimes did, but uh, overall, I think other than those three bad plays, he had a whole lot of good plays, and he kind of made the best of a bad situation against a just overwhelmed pass protection uh, and constant long-yarded situations because they could not get Saquon, uh, Saquon going in the run game. So uh, the Steelers are legit, and they're still not even close to where I think they can be. Uh, when they inevitably go up against Baltimore, which I can't remember when they play Baltimore, that I think is going to be one of the games in the AFC uh, as like a measuring stick for where yeah, for where these teams TV. are. Must see TV because it's an elite elite defense that gave Lamar a lot of trouble last year. Like people forget Lamar's worst performance last year was against the Steelers defense. Uh, so I'm very Ooh. curious to see how they. Oh yeah. So the Denver defense, which we've been lamenting their strength uh, and the fact that they really didn't look like they could stop much just stuffed the big old bad Tennessee Titans on a very short yardage play to force a big decision by Tennessee we'll see how that goes but um three quick hit thoughts on the Steelers Uh, if you've been listening to anybody that knows anything about the Steelers Steelers insiders over the offseason they have been banging the drum for Deontay Johnson everybody loves Juju Mm -hmm. but they've been saying Deontay Johnson is coming Pay attention to Deontay Johnson. He's going to have a huge season. So not surprised that Deontay showed up in the first game uh, if you've been paying attention. Quick shout-out to one of our favorites. Claypool had that sideline catch that was ridiculous. Disgusting. Disgusting. Huge receiver. If he comes on at all, the forget it. The, The Steelers wide receiver core was already kind of off the charts. If Claypool gives them anything this year, and it sure looks like he's going to, forget it. You just can't even grade their wide receiver core. Uh, and the other thing is, I hate this so much because in my other podcast, we did a betting podcast. We had to choose three overs, three unders, three division winners, and a Super Bowl winner. So 10 total picks. And uh, my podcast co-host, I love him as I will, uh, snaked all of my unders, and I was left with nothing at the end. And I had to pick a final under, and there was nothing left. Giants gone, Jets gone. All the picks I wanted to take were gone. I ended up having to take a flyer on the Steelers because their line is nine and a half, and just hoping that they won nine and knowing that they were probably going to obliterate that because Mike Tomlin always wins 10 games. So them coming out super strong in the first game just is awesome for all the Steelers fans out there. Go Steeler Nation. It sucks for me because I'm that under is just blown. <laughs> I have no chance. I don't care what the under is. 
I, I will never take the under on the Steelers. Like last year was the I, it worst. It was literally we'll ever all those see. left. I would never do it either because Tomlin is so solid. But literally with his first two picks, JB took my first two unders, and I was like, damn. Last year was the worst Steelers team. I think that that we will see unless they completely botched the the. Uh, getting Ben a successor like last year was the worst. I was going to say when you're playing duck um, and come on. Yeah, it's not great. And they were still, they were still fighting to get in the playoffs in week 17 and they were awful on offense. Yeah. Good old, good old duck. All right. My fourth thought uh, from week one is, and people can call me a homer for this. I'm totally fine with that. Juan Castillo is a miracle worker. Came in to Mm -hmm. coach Chicago's offensive line from the first snap of their game against Detroit, which was uh, flawed in a lot of ways, most of the ways for three and a half quarters or, or three solid quarters. But the one way it was not flawed and markedly different than their 2019 tape, the Chicago offensive line looked competent. And beyond that, they looked capable and productive. They were opening holes from early in the first quarter, and they sustained that throughout. And it made a huge difference. We saw Montgomery get some good runs. We saw Cordell Patterson get some good runs. Even Cohen, who last year got pretty much shut down, had some very productive runs. All five starters looked pretty good. Massey had a couple of eh, reps, but Whitehair and Daniels had so many communication breakdowns in week one last year and it really set the tone against green bay they never really recovered and throughout the year they never righted the ship the chicago offensive line was a mess last year and the offense sputtered because of it this year absolutely productive a Jermaine Effetti as the one new guy on the line is looking like a road grader and moving people he was a difference maker against the lions Nagy looks like he has completely revamped his run game. They were running outside zone. They were running toss. Things that he didn't touch in the first couple of years. And those two things go hand in hand. Castillo running the offensive line differently and Nagy saying, hey, I'm going to play to some strengths here. I'm going to see if I can't manipulate some of the qualities that my offensive players have in a different way. The result was Chicago's run game looked completely different i know you watched that game this morning on replay what did you think it was one of Nagy's most well coached games in a while and i know people say well well, they were down so much and had to come back like i get that like they they were in a hole more for execution than than play calling but in terms of how Nagy handled the run game this is what we were begging for all of last year was give us some variety in the run game and we saw everything as you said outside zone inside zone duo power uh they ran trap with Tariq Cohen you know you put Tariq Cohen in there in, in the in the gun make him think it's a pass you know get these defensive tackles flying upfield and then they they run trap behind James Daniels for 14 yards and I'm like good god where's this been for two years so I know. Was, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you as a Bears fan know better than anybody. Like we've been like, come on. This. And the other thing they showed yesterday, which plays directly off this, is play action. On my other yes. podcast, Bears over beers, we have been hammering the table for. Come on, man! Don't just do it lip service for two downs a game. Run play action it works the stats are out there doesn't matter if you're having a decent rushing day or not play action puts half a step of hesitation in the rusher and it works and Nagy would not do it or he would do it and go away from it and yesterday consistently used play action and the offense looked although you said could he use some better execution looked completely different for the Bears Speaking of looking completely different, uh, are there two more different quarterbacks in the league than Mitchell Trubisky in the first 56 minutes and Mitchell Trubisky in the final four minutes? Because I can't think of any. No, I I coined a phrase last year and it sort of stuck with it and, and people started throwing it at me yesterday, especially with what happened. But uh, the phrase I coined with Mitchell is the Mitch switch. And you can tell when it flips and when it doesn't. When it doesn't, he looks Mm -hmm. like the little Bambi. He looks like the scared deer in headlights. 
He doesn't have any idea what he's doing, which is about 53 minutes worth of, of yesterday's game versus the Lions. Once it flips, he is unconscious. It happens when they go quick. It happens when he doesn't have to think. And he turns into a different guy. I mean, you'd think Jekyll and Hyde is bad. This is worse or more exaggerated. As bad as he is to as good as he is. That throw to Anthony Miller for the touchdown yesterday against Detroit. Oh, ice cold. It's If you look at his form, he rotates. <laughs> He rotates his hips. He throws his way to his front foot. That ball is just barely over the hands of the outstretched defender, perfectly in Miller's grasp. Like, that is a gorgeous throw, and those are the kinds of throws he makes late in the fourth when they're going quickly or, quite frankly, when he plays Detroit. (laughs) And somebody said, did you flip the Mitch switch? And I said, I so wish I could because it is so different. Look, if Mitch Trubisky played more often like he does when the Mitch switch flips he would have his fifth year extension without question it wouldn't have been up for debate the Bears would also have a Super Bowl ring just saying yeah well there's that but (laughs) I don't have enough alcohol to make up for that so we're just gonna skip that point entirely no when Mitch plays like that it's great but the problem is he made the perfect argument for both sides of his haters and his lovers yesterday. Mm -hmm. The first 53 minutes reinforced those of us that are like, you can't do this. You can't put the team in the hole. Look at him miss that throw. Oh man, come on. And then the last quarter when he rallies against a bad team that they should have absolutely blown out of the water, especially with a competent running game. Everybody's going to say, see, see, that's what he can do. That's the quarterback he is. And I'm like, well, that's not the quarterback he is for most of the game. So he actually made the perfect point for both sides of the argument, which leaves the Bears nowhere right in quarterback purgatory. So that's uh just something that's my cross to bear i guess i'll just deal with that i will say he doesn't he won't really be tested by a great defense till week five against the buccaneers like it's not an unreasonable scenario for the bears to be like three and one going into that tampa game and have super high confidence only for them to not be able to run the ball against vitavea and you know for 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 the Bucks defense, which I think is a very good defense to just completely unleash on him. Uh, I, I will say ride the highs while you can, but in typical Trubisky fashion, you kind of have to be guarded against the possibility that um, this could come crashing down pretty hard. And I think be happy. You have a good football team. For once, you have a good offensive line and a good run game. Uh, just... yeah. Don't don't let yourself get suckered into thinking that this is going to work long term because I'm personally, as somebody who, who loves the Bears, even though I'm a Texans fan, I've always had a soft spot for the Bears. Uh, I, I in totally believe it when I see it mode. Um, yeah, so and you should wait, be. wait for the Tampa game. Wait for the Tampa game. That's all I'm asking you. Please just. By the way, if you're making a, a list of best inside linebackers in the game and you don't have Levante David on it, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. <laughs> Dude, his game yesterday was was oh, unreal. Moving. <laughs> moving. So what's your next thought? So uh, my final thought for the week is the Cardinals have a real defense. I'm not saying they're elite. But Arizona is not just a one-dimensional team anymore, and that makes them exceptionally dangerous. They have balance. They have, um, for once, an ability to help out their young quarterback in ways that they could not last year. It's not just Kyler and Hopkins doing their thing on offense and hoping to outscore everybody. You know, if they get out although to a slow start, although that's pretty impressive. <laughs> although it's pretty impressive, and Hopkins in his first game in Arizona. Or, or for Arizona, if career high in catches, first game. I, I wasn't going to bring it up just out of deference to you, but oh, oh my great. god, he's great, <laughs> he's incredible, he's incredible, and and yeah. and this is him hurt. <laughs> this yeah. is Hopkins when he's hurt, but you know it, it's not just the offense doing everything by themselves, and when they get out to a slow start like they did on Sunday, uh, Hopkins notwithstanding, 
they have a defense that can keep it close so that Kyler and Cliff can then come out in the second half. And, you know, they were known as a second half team last year. They called him cover Kyler for a reason, if you're familiar in Vegas betting circles, because he would cover all the time because in the fourth quarter, he'd pull stuff out of his butt and, and, you know, close the gap and they would play teams close because they're such a good second half team. But their defense was always so bad that usually the game was unwinnable by the time the offense would get going. This year, the defense held a very good 49ers offense. I don't care what their injuries are. This is still a Kyle Shanahan offense. It's still really good. And they held them extremely well for the first, you know, probably three quarters of the game until... Uh, you know, they got that last touchdown and opened it up to 20. But even then, even though the Cardinals fell behind and they had to to get that game-winning touchdown, the game was still within reach because this defense was good enough. They held Mostert to no. 3.7 yards per carry. What happened? Oh, Drew had an open shot to win it, and he overthrew him. He just, uh, he overthrew him. He had two yards of separation. He overthrew him. Let me see this. Who is this? Hamilton? Watch this. Yep, Deshaun Hamilton. I told you earlier. Look oh, at that. He's got two yards and he him. just airmailed him. Oh, that's rough. Gosh. That's rough. But he'll want that one. Anywho. Yeah. With the Cardinals defense, they held Mostert to less than four yards a carry. He did have that one seventy-five yard receiving touchdown, but other than that, Ooh. no 49ers skill position player had more than 44 yards receiving. So the run game was stifled, the pass game was stifled. Jimmy G looked frustrated as all hell. The pass rush was in his face constantly. And again, holding a Kyle Shanahan offense to 20 points is is an achievement, in my opinion. And just the fact that they're able to help out the offense and give them enough time to become their second-half selves and figure it out and pull out a win, that completely changes the game for the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, I, I think it, it, it honestly, it spells that they can be a 10 or 11 win team if not potentially contend for the division, because if you can take out the Niners, you can take out anybody. I think they can contend for the division. At minimum, I think they're a playoff team. And if this keeps trending this way, uh, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they go really, really deep into January. Yeah, the Cardinals for the over is a great choice. I didn't get to take it in my betting podcast, but I would have. It was absolutely high on my list. And I think I'm going to agree with you in most ways here and say yes their defense is much improved and look to frustrate the 49ers i'm gonna flip the coin on that one and say jimmy g looked rough last yesterday yeah he yeah did not have a very clean game at all uh i'm not taking anything away i think the cardinals defense we actually talked about it in our divisional preview that there was a lot of talent on that defense and that, you know, again, it was um, thin towards the upper crust, right? That if you removed four or five key starters across offense and defense, that team would fall off faster than most. But if those folks stay healthy, it is a very talented team and they look to be hitting on all cylinders against a very talented offense, a great play call, one of the best play callers. Honestly, that's probably the matchup of play callers right now besides Andy Reid in the NFL was yesterday's Cards 49ers game, right? Cliff had so much creativity in the run game in year one with Kyler. He's going to have even more. He showed even more in year two. Obviously, Shanahan is well-respected and sort of a tier above most NFL play callers, if you ask NFL coaches. Um, Andy Reid showed great balance on Thursday. We talked about that in our wrap-up podcast. But between those three guys, and two of them played each other yesterday, what a treat. Um, so yeah, Cardinals to win more games than people thought they were going to after yesterday, I'd say that's a pretty safe bet. I would say closer to even money than a real risk. So, uh, my last thought or second to last thought, because I'm going to add a six, I'm just going to throw that wild card in there because it's tough to ignore, but my five is not a wild card. Aaron Donald is a superhero that moonlights as a football player, and I will not hear any arguments (laughs) to the contrary. He is, he has been ridiculous. Look, he's a two-time NFL defensive MVP, right? Yesterday, he took Zeke, who is a very solid human being, and quite frankly, one of, if not the best pass-blocking run back, uh, running back I have ever graded at the college level. It was one of the things that really stood out to me about Zeke and his evaluation was 
just how pro he was at pass protection. He took Zeke and threw him into the quarterback after blasting through whatever offensive line was in front of him with With one one arm, arm, by the way. (laughs) With one arm. He picked up Zeke, made him look completely silly, and then just chucked him at Dak. That's scary. (laughs) Like, that's just frightening. And then right after that, he knocked two offensive linemen into one another like bowling pins and then laid hands on Dak in anger. Uh, you know, incredibly quickly. It's just not even fair. I, I posted both of those clips on Twitter if you're looking for them. And one of the responses was, they need to piss cup him as soon as he gets off the field. <laughs> right? And I get it. I mean, watching, like, these these are grown men who get paid to do what they do. They don't want this done to them. In fact, they're out there to oppose that very thing. And Donald doesn't care right they say honey badger doesn't care no aaron donald doesn't care he is knocking folks around picking people up and throwing them into other people great speed penetration there was the whole little kerfuffle about the analytics community saying he wasn't great against the run i'm like i'm cool i'll take it you want to drop him on the bears anytime no problem he was one pick away let's go Uh, (laughs) he is the most disruptive force on defense in the NFL. And I feel fairly confident saying that. And there are some great, great players. I was struck watching uh, right before this podcast, I was sort of flipping through all the NFL highlights on the NFL app on my Xbox, just watching all the highlights from all the games in a row. And the NFL is just packed with great athletes. Packed. So many amazing plays every week. I saw crazy one-handed catches from receivers and tight ends alike. We already talked about the quarterbacks and the defensive lines that were just wrecking. You watch Aaron Donald highlights and you're like, this is something else. This is something completely different. And I don't really know. He's on a different plane. I'm not sure there are any other players playing that are on that plane where it's just so, where he's making other grown men in the profession look like children. When he was coming out of pit, uh, I in my mock draft that year, I had him going fifth overall to the Raiders. For record, I, I had Khalil Mack going. I think it was like third to the Jags, and everybody was like, "Why are you? Why are you putting an undersized defensive tackle in the top five? Like that's insane." Uh, and I was like, "Well, because I think there's a decent chance that he becomes like eighty or ninety percent of John Randall." And if you're getting 80 or 90% of John Randall, he's worth a top five pick. At this point in his career, he's better than John Randall. He's oh, 115% of John Randall, which means he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, arguably one of the greatest, not just defensive linemen, defensive players, period, in the history of the sport. Like, he is the only, and I mean the only, modern comparison to him is prime J.J. Watt between the years of 2012 and 2015 when he had you know three Defensive Player of the Year awards out of four years. That is the only other time I have ever seen a defensive player be this dominant, and I don't know if I'm ever going to see it again. He is utterly ridiculous in every sense of the word. And for anybody to call him, um, you know, there's a stir caused last week when some ESPN analytics formula they just released that he was average against the run. Hell no. Aaron Donald <laughs> is not average in anything ever, ever. If your metric says that Aaron Donald is average at something, get a new metric. It's wrong. Yeah, it's not. It is hard to compare him to anyone. And I've seen lots of defensive players that played at a very high level and Look, the the league is tilted towards offense. The rules have been slanted towards offense and scoring for a long time. Uh, quarterbacks more protected. Wide receivers have more free run than they have in a very long time. Uh, hitting rules for player safety, which I'm all for. This isn't a rant against that. It's just a different league, and Aaron Donald still doing what he does is fairly amazing. But he's on the level of like an LT and I know yeah. that is sacrilege to a lot of people, but I saw LT play live, and 
he wrecked people in a very similar way. There just wasn't a good way to stop him. You couldn't really game plan against it. And even if you did, he was still going to wreck shop. Donald is the same way in that way. Now, he hasn't done it for as long or amassed as many stats as LT did. But his level of play elevated compared to his competitors is similar and on a similar trajectory. There's a minute left in this Titans game, by the way, and Goskowski's 0 for 3 in field goals. So uh, we'll see bum, if they bum, kick bum. it. <laughs> I uh, mean, shout out to Vic Fangio, too. I, you know, Vic Fangio, I thought, was one of the guys that would be real susceptible to, you know, the COVID lockdown. He loves famously making pasta in his own kitchen. And Vic looks absolutely svelte. So shout out to Vic Fangio for whatever he's done during the COVID lockdown. He looks to be in great shape. Indeed, he he is looking pretty good, especially, uh, I think, compared to his Chicago days. I think he's probably dropped 10 or 15 pounds. I would agree with that. Um, There was, as we're talking about field goals here, there was an interesting stat from Michael Lombardi um, in the realm of analytics where a 50-yard field goal, if you miss it, it's basically as good as a turnover when you look at the field position gain for the offense. And there were 12 50-plus-yard field goals attempted on Sunday. Only five were made. And only one team that attempted a 50-yard field goal on a, quote-unquote, makeable fourth down, so fourth and short, fourth and medium, uh, only one team that attempted those actually won the game, and that, and that was Arizona. Uh, well, the Chargers might have attempted that. But um, either way, most of the teams that attempted it, like, say, Detroit— where Prater doinked one, uh, they lost. Because, again, if you attempt a 50-yard field goal on a makeable fourth down, theoretically, your fourth down conversion rate should be at least comparable to or potentially more than your 50-plus yard field goal rate, even with a guy like Matt Prater. And so analytics-wise, when you look at game situation, it is preferable to go for it because the potential for an extra four points and the potential of converting is so it's so similar to the effectiveness of calling no! oh my god aj no! oh you got to catch that <laughs> oh man it's only fair oh, god okay here it comes just here's the thing 20 seconds left down by one fourth and one your your kickers missed three field goals they're going yeah, for it. Here he comes. Goskowski comes on, but it's only fair because Locke overthrew his receiver in the end zone and Tannehill, Tannehill just did him the favor of doing the exact same thing by overthrowing A.J. Brown in the corner. Ah, oh, this is brutal. It and is brutal. Is, I just checked the score and I didn't realize that we were talking about a 14-13 game with like no time left. Did he hit this he one? Nailed he it. hit this one. He nailed it. Goskowski, oh the Titans steal one on the road impressive well depressing but impressive but here's the thing it shouldn't have even been that close no there should be an extra nine points on the board for tennessee yeah for sure you know that's that's how rough the kicking game was is that it made a close game out of a game that should not have been close denver was really struggling uh on offense for a lot of this game um, not necessarily Drew, Lock, Drew Locke's fault, as I said. I think overall he looked pretty good. But uh, the, the Titans' defensive front was kind of having their way with this with this Broncos offensive line. This should not have been a close game. But special teams has been rough around the league. And, and going back to that Michael Lombardi point, when special teams, when the percentages are not in your favor relative to going, through it on, going for it on fourth down, analytics-wise, you have to go for it and trust your offense and the teams that did not trust their offenses all lost other than Arizona. So it's, it's something to monitor going forward. We'll see if the 50 plus yard field goal hit rate improves throughout the season. But if it doesn't, I think we're going to start seeing teams on fourth down, go for it more and more. And uh, a great tweet from Greg Rosenthal about, you know, taking the foot out of football a little bit more uh, with each passing year. I, th- I think we're going to see that come to fruition. And I think we're going to see a lot of teams leave their offense out there because analytics wise, it's just, if, if the field goal is not almost a guaranteed chip shot, it's, it's almost not even worth going for it at this point. Yeah. They've moved those uprights in and we saw kicking rates decline a little bit. And man, the first week it was just 
so pervasive. Just about every game had a missed extra point, something off the crossbar. Uh, we had missed 40 yarders. I saw missed 38 yarder. It's just all over the place. So what would be traditionally not necessarily gimmies, but certainly before they move the uprights in almost chip shots, uh, the rates on those field goals are very, very high. Uh, not so in the early beginning of 2020 and drew lock almost getting picked off deep but he doesn't have much of a choice because he's got very little time left so it looks like the titans may steal one in denver here but you got anything else before we get ourselves out of here hell of a week of football a lot of really fun games um a lot of injuries to monitor going forward. That was another kind of general theme. Oh, yeah, you called this. We need, to, we need to talk about this because you called this on our Thursday night. You said, I think week one is going to be, quote unquote, hamstring city. And man, did you nail the and injury and the fact that there were a ton of hamstrings in week one. So great call in the crystal ball that soft tissue was going to be a thing with no preseason. And uh, we saw a ton of that, which we're not celebrating hamstring injuries because those are terrible. If you've ever had one, they hurt like hell. Um, but hopefully easier to come back from than some other ones, which we saw, which, uh, you know, ended people's season. They just showed uh, a picture of Von Miller post-surgery looked like um, smiling and playing some video games. That's a bummer. Um, certainly our thoughts go out to everybody around the league that is affected by those things because it's no fun. These guys work extremely hard for the chance, for the opportunities. Careers are short. Um, there was an injury early yesterday in the Chargers game. And look, the player was openly weeping on the card as he left. And you could see that it's been such a difficult year. Everybody's worked so hard to get to the point for our entertainment, quite frankly, where these games are reality. And he made it about a quarter before his season was ended. And it's just, it's crushing. It's heartbreaking. So thoughts go out to all the folks who are injured, rehab hard. We hope you come back strong. Um, we'll have to uh, keep an eye, like you said, on those soft tissue injuries. Um, and it's just going to be a strange year. We talked about this. We're going to see more sort of up and down. The practice squad rules have changed to accommodate for that. Um, IR is shorter now, so you can put somebody on IR and take them back uh, more than you could in previous years. So just a different bit of a landscape there, but definitely something to look forward to or not look forward to, but monitor as we go forward in the NFL season. Absolutely. So I, I can't wait for week two. I think it's Browns Bengals on Thursday night. So we get to see Joe Burrow in prime time against a Cleveland Browns team. That's uh, Nick Chubb and, and Kareem Hunt in the same backfield. David and Joku looks like a new player. He had some big plays. Baker Mayfield looked a little bit rough, but that offense is loaded. Defense has a ton of talent, um, and we already talked at length about Joe Burrow. So it'll be a really fun matchup on Thursday night. Hope you guys have a way to enjoy it. Um, until then, uh, you can watch for our stuff on Twitter. Uh, Brett will be a little bit more active than I will over the next week, but that's okay. Uh, don't know that we'll get you another podcast this week, but we will do another wrap-up. So go ahead and drop anything you want us to talk about in the comments. As we said, there's way too much to pack into one podcast. We're already in an hour and 12 minutes. So we'll cut that down a little bit, hopefully, for you. But happy to talk to you. A great kickoff to the NFL season. I think we're all happy it's actually here and we have real football to talk about. Uh, so until then, keep listening, and we will talk to you soon. Later. Later.